Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, in the new book, At the Dawn of Tourism in Florida, John T. Foster says that abolitionists, including Harriet Beecher Stowe, started Florida's tourism industry. So she's a part of a group, but this group is related to each other and they are motivated by being social activists. We'll discuss the Audubon Society in Florida. There were 15 chapter organizations around the country, and Florida started right in the beginning of 1900, in March of 1900. And we'll talk with author and editor Deborah Plant about writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Today, Disney World is nearly synonymous with Florida tourism, but the industry began a century before Walt Disney came here. In his latest book, At the Dawn of Tourism in Florida, Abolitionists, Print Media, and Images for Early Vacationers, John T. Foster Jr. makes a compelling argument that the birth of tourism in Florida did not begin with the railroad barons of the 1880s as is popularly believed, but with social activist writers of the Reconstruction era following the Civil War. One of those writers was Harriet Beecher Stowe. Her abolitionist views led Stowe to write one of the most famous novels of her time, Uncle Tom's Cabin. John Foster. It was the most popular novel written in the United States in the 19th century. The first year it was published in this country, it sold 350,000 copies. Estimated sales in the 19th century were 3 million. In this country, 3.5 million abroad. And so it was incredibly popular in uh, Great Britain. When President Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe, he only half-jokingly credited her with starting the American Civil War. He greeted her at the White House and said, so you are this little woman who started this great war. This is because a lot of people in the North had no real knowledge of slavery. And Uncle Tom's Cabin portrays slavery in all kinds of different ways. Southerners are portrayed at times very positively. This is not all a negative rant 
uh, Uncle Tom has become something of a synonym for a pleasant, meek, mild person of color. What people don't realize is that two women, two slaves, wanted to escape from Simon Legree, and Tom knew where they hid. And Legree and a bunch of his friends and colleagues went out into the swamps on two occasions trying to find these women. And after this, Legree confronts Tom and says, you know where they are? And Tom says, sure, I know where they are. And he says, well, what are you gonna do about it? And Tom says, I can die. And so that's what uncorks Legree's rage. And he proceeds to beat Tom fiercely. He has some other slaves join him and that, of course, destroys. But not before Uncle Tom looks at the blacks who participated in this and says, I forgive you. And so they, in fact, convert to Christianity. While living in Florida, Stowe wrote dozens of articles describing the state's wonderful weather, flora, and fauna. As John Foster points out in his latest book, At the Dawn of Tourism in Florida, and his previous book, Calling Yankees to Florida, Stowe's writings about Florida had an ulterior motive. She wanted to bring progressive northerners to the southernmost state. She was trying to create a place of freedom in the South. This made sense because the Civil War had freed four and a half million African Americans and there needed to be a place for them to live. But it couldn't be based on an old economy driven by cotton. And so she's very much interested in tourism of novel agricultural crops citrus being a primary one. And in the wake of her activities here, citrus took off and by the end of the 70s was a major source of revenue for farmers in Florida. And so she wants a different economy. And keep in mind, Florida in 1870 did not have 200,000 residents. You hear what I said? 200,000, it was actually like 180,000. And it was almost evenly half black and half white. Uh, I think there was 5,000 more whites. But the white groups are not exactly cordial with one another. You have the Menorcans from St. Augustine, who are here from the British colonial period, obviously Catholic, and have remained so. You have a large group of people who are rural frontier farmers. And these people are Protestant, but not really in churches. They're out in small farms. Uh, the yearling is a portrayal of some of these people. Then you have a planter group, very much like you would have had in Virginia or in the Tidewater area, or in South Carolina in the Tidewater and Sea Islands. And these people are primarily 50 miles east and west of Tallahassee, where there are red clay hills. And so these two groups actually did not get along well, and the Civil War made it worse. Foster says that Harriet Beecher Stowe and other writers are not given the credit they are due for starting Florida's tourism industry. 
progressive northerners were lured to the state with colorful descriptions of desirable weather and abundant natural beauty. Foster says that it was with these forward-thinking writers that modern Florida was born. Attention from her has drifted off to other people, and some of it has been completely unwarranted. Historians of the last 20 or 30 years have given lots of credit to the railroad builders of the 1880s. And there's no doubt that they built fancy hotels and built railroads to new places in Florida. They did not bring the tourists. There are accounts, even in the New York Times, of 50,000 tourists being in Florida in 1873. This is a state that may not have had 200,000 residents, 50,000 tourists. And so she's contributing this, but people she knew were contributing to this as well. Uh, one of them was William Cullen Bryant, and William Cullen Bryant was a visitor to Mandarin. In fact, how I made some important discoveries is he's the one guest she mentions. And so I looked him up, and lo and behold, I ran into a tour book that featured Florida, a two-volume set. And I think each volume has, I want to say, 30 different chapters. Would you believe the rivers, St. John's and Oklawaha, in this two-volume set is the second chapter. St. Augustine is in volume one as well as the 13th chapter. These are highly illustrated. So you've got William Cullen Bryant, people knowledgeable of 19th century poetry, would realize that he was one of the greatest poets of that period. George William Curtis also uh, featured Florida. In that era, Harper's was like, for people of a certain age, Life and Look magazine pulled together into one. Harper's highly illustrated every article, illustration and a description of something and another illustration. Another. That's the way this is, except it's all lithographs, drawings by artists. And Curtis is with Harper's New Monthly. And Harper's is fantastically popular in the Civil War period and for the next most of the rest of the century. Harper's featured Florida 10 times in the 1870s. I don't know what other state was even a distant second. If you wanted to know what St. Augustine looked like, you could go to Harper's and see it. If you wanted to know what it looked like, you could go to that tour book that William Cullen Bryant's association. You can see the fort in St. Augustine. You can see the lighthouse. You can even see the original lighthouse. And Florida's archives does not have an image of the 18th century archives. There is a lithograph of it, complete made so that it looks like a fortress, is what you would want to be and have if you're out there on an island and pirates are available, English raiders are available. So she's a part of a group, but this group is related to each other, and they are motivated by being social activists. Harriet Beecher Stowe was an active force in the effort to end slavery, using both her fiction and nonfiction writing as tools in that fight. This can be traced back to the 1850s, and what had happened were all kinds of events that occurred in the wake of the Mexican-American War. 
The issue was if you look at a space from Texas to California, up California to Washington, back to Minnesota, and down the western side of Iowa and Missouri, is a vast amount of territory. And the issue became in the 1850s, what is going to happen to all of this? How many states are there going to be? And so in doing this, she and others are afraid that slavery will expand into these areas. And with the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, the issue is going to be put to a vote in Kansas territory, slave or free. And there were people who decided to encourage settlers from the North to settle in Kansas. Abolitionists in Kansas faced an uphill battle. Legislation was passed making it illegal to speak against slavery, and there was violence aimed at stopping abolitionists. The Immigrant Aid Company was formed to encourage progressive Northerners to move to Kansas, and by the time the Civil War started, the state supported the Union. Leaders of this successful abolitionist movement in Kansas would later turn their attention to Florida. John Foster. So if you want to link them together, uh, William Cullen Bryant was a, uh, one of the directors of the Immigrant Aid Company in the 50s. Calvin Stowe, Harriet's husband, was a stockholder in the company, attended meetings. And he wasn't one who just was always silent either. He, in fact, is recorded in making statements and proposals. Curtis went to great length to say that the fate of this country was at stake. He did this in public, in a publication, comparing this situation in Kansas to Thermopylae in ancient Greece, and saying that the future is here. We've got to make a choice. So you have Curtis involved with abolition, and then you have Curtis at Harper's featuring Florida. You have Bryant, who came to Florida in the 1840s, and so he already knew what Florida was like. It even published descriptions of Florida. So he knew that, in fact, these plans were plausible. So there, there's a consistency. Kansas and these activists are involved in it. The activists are supporting the federal government, and then they're supporting getting um, people to come to Florida. John T. Foster, Jr. is author of the book At the Dawn of Tourism in Florida, Abolitionists, Print Media, and Images for Early Vacationers, and co-editor of the book Calling Yankees to Florida, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Forgotten Tourist Articles. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. 
Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Bendy Biasi, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, naturalist John James Audubon visited Florida in the 1830s documenting birds here, but his greatest impact may have actually come in the next century. Yeah, that's right, Ben. Audubon was in Florida. He made several trips to Florida, as you said, in the 1830s, primarily recording and painting, eventually, native birds and migratory bird species that were in Florida as part of his much larger series on birds of America. But it wasn't, as you said, until the beginning of the 20th century that his name was adapted for a society, what became known as the Audubon Society. In fact, in the 1890s, up in New England, the first society was formed, and it was really to preserve a dwindling bird habitat. There was a significant loss of avian populations throughout the country, and people started taking note of that. So they started a conservation society, named it in his honor. At the time of the turn of the century, about 1900, there were 15 chapter organizations around the country, and Florida started right in the beginning of 1900, in March of 1900. And there was a meeting in Maitland of interested parties who decided to form the Florida Audubon Society. And the official start date is March 2nd of 1900, and it was at a private residence. People got together and decided to form this group to solicit subscriptions, to raise funds, and to raise awareness was really the primary motivation for organization of the Audubon Society. They just wanted people to be aware of the complexity of Florida's biodiversity and this web of biodiversity that, of course, birds played and continue to play a major part of. Now, you have here two booklets published by the Florida Audubon Society that describe the history of the organization. Yeah, that's right. The first one we're looking at is the Florida Audubon Society, 1900 to 1935. And it was written by Lucy Worthington Blackman. And it's really a history of the society, the first 35 years. And I mentioned the first meeting here, and the first chapter is entitled In the Beginning, 1900 to 1912. And it says here, Maitland, March 2nd, 1900. And at the society, they list essentially what was happening. It was kind of a collection of meeting minutes. I'll just read briefly a quote about why they formed the society. They said here, attention was called to the destruction of song and plumage birds in this state and to the work that had to be done in other states of protecting our feathered friends. Letters were read from parties interested in the forming of such a society in this state, and the most encouraging statements were offered regarding the promised support, both financial and moral, which would be forthcoming should such a society be formed, end quote. So this is the opening chapters, at least, of of what became a very storied society. And as you get through the book, you'll see that their efforts started with education 
education, but evolved into a much more active role in creating legislation uh, and in really physically protecting these bird species. They had a lot of volunteers that would go out into uh, game preserves and into the wilds of Florida and help to not only patrol these established bird rookeries, but also help facilitate the young birds to survive, essentially. They would move nests around and, and do everything they could to try and help these native and migratory bird species who relied on Florida's marsh areas to survive, you know, the Everglades and places like that, these really diverse regions. Florida is really an important place to form an an Audubon society because of just the sheer numbers of bird species that end up coming to Florida throughout the year and, and rely on the really diverse ecological regions throughout the state. Now, the Florida Audubon Society was certainly influential in the past. Is it still an active organization today? It absolutely is, and Florida has the highest concentration of chapter organizations outside of any other state. I mean, there are dozens of organizations throughout Florida. Of course, quite a few are in and around the Everglades, but throughout the Gulf region, the Panhandle, there's such a variety of bird life. And the needs of the wildlife populations throughout Florida, including birds, the need for preservation is certainly still present. So a lot of the same issues that the folks that formed the society back in 1900, they still exist today but they've sort of evolved over time and and have changed in the scope, at least. So Florida's population has grown tremendously over the course of the 20th and into the 21st century. So loss of habitat has really become one of the primary concerns where in 1900, it was more about overhunting and uh, use of bird plumage for fashion, latest fashions and things like that. So preservation is not necessarily the key. It it is still an issue, uh, preservation of the population, but it's really about managing land more than anything else so that these birds populations have a place to go. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the Florida Audubon pamphlets we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She spoke with author and editor Deborah Plant about writer and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston. Deborah Plant is an English literature and Africana studies scholar and an associate professor at the University of South Florida. She is also the editor of the recently published book, Barracoon, The Story of the Last Black Cargo, written by Zora Neale Hurston in 1931. The book is based on Hurston's 1927 interviews with Cujo Lewis, the last known survivor of the African slave trade. I talked with Deborah Plant while at the 30th Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities in Eatonville about author and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston and how her hometown of Eatonville shaped her. We can begin with her family life you know, with her mother, who exhorted her and all of her children to jump at the sun. I mean, how special was that? I think that's very important. And then there's uh, her father. He was the mayor of the town three times, right? And he was a very popular preacher. And, you know, she was enamored of her father's ability to regale the congregations and just very impressed with 
what she calls uh, his barbaric uh, folk poetry, right? And you can see this in her work. The structure of the folk sermon, you can see that as it is manifested even in something like her autobiography, uh, The Strikes on the Road, those formulations as such. Eatonville, Florida, the childhood home of Zora Neale Hurston, was one of the first all-black incorporated towns in the United States. Deborah Plant. Hurston never felt inferior to anyone, and I believe that Eatonville had a lot to do with that. What she saw was success, you know. She saw people do things, build things, you know, run a city, run a school, all of these positions of authority. She saw that, and she saw people who were of African descent doing those things. So that affirmative kind of attitude and that loving disposition that she had about black people and black culture inspired her work, and it, I think it was a light for her own life. Sora Neale Hurston was proud of her Eatonville roots. She used Eatonville as the setting for many of her stories, including her 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Deborah Plant. Eatonville, the idea of black people expressing their genius, building a town, running the town, all black, right? And, and doing it so, so very well. The idea of Booker T. Washington comes in as, you know, the philosophy of self-help and the philosophy of industrial education and all those kind of things. These were foundational tenets of, of Eatonville. And Hurston had imbibed that too, which, you know, sort of shaped her politics and philosophy in terms of individualism. So, so much about Edenville, and I can see, almost I can see, I think, everything about Edenville shaped her thought as well as her choices in terms of, you know, what, what kind of work she would do, what she would bring to that work, and all of that kind of thing. Zora Neale Hurston is remembered as one of the most important American novelists from the first half of the 20th century. The Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities is held in her honor every year in her beloved hometown of Eatonville. The fact that this is the 30th anniversary of the festival, I think, speaks volumes about how the people of Eatonville have, I don't know, grown in, in their knowledge and wisdom about Zora Neale Hurston. What we know about this festival is that it's part of the organization that was formed to preserve the Eatonville community, right? So that it wouldn't be torn asunder by expressways and all of that kind of thing. And so the festival becomes a part of that particular project. But in that, you know, what it expresses is the importance of, of black culture. The genius of a people is a people saving grace. The idea of saving the town is recognizing the town's history, which is a part of culture, right? And then celebrating that and doing that in, in this particular instance by way of also remembering and celebrating one of Edenville's very own geniuses, and, and that's Zorna Hurston. This interview with Deborah Plant is an excerpt from the podcast of the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities called Every Tongue Got to Confess. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week 
You can also listen as a podcast and find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.